Good morning. My name is Richard Bird. I'm a partner in our IP data and commercial practice here in Hong Kong. And I'm joined today by two colleagues from the US to discuss managing data and cyber risk in M&A. Firstly, by Christine Lyon, a partner in our Silicon Valley office and a co-head of our global privacy and security group. And also by counsel Brock Dahl, who joined the firm recently from the US National Security Agency, where he was deputy general counsel for operations. So we'll start with cyber. The acquisitions of Yahoo by Verizon, TO in Canada, and the Starwood Hotel Group, these are all examples of high-profile deals where it was discovered either during the deal or shortly afterwards that the acquisition target was the subject of, a, of an ongoing cyber attack. Now, Marriott's takeover of Starwood in 2016 is the first of these incidents to get really closely scrutinized by privacy and cyber regulators in around 30 different countries, in fact, including in a dozen countries here in Asia in which they were advised by Freshfields. The investigation pursued by the Information Commissioner's Office in the UK asked specifically whether Marriott had undertaken sufficient diligence before the takeover. And one point that emerges strongly from all of the investigations of that incident worldwide is that a purchaser is deemed to inherit full responsibility for target systems and the data they hold from the moment of closing of a transaction, even if the purchaser plans to decommission those systems. Another point that emerges from a lot of breach decisions is that regulars appear to follow a frankly simple but superficially compelling logic, namely that the fact of the breach demonstrates that the security must necessarily have been inadequate to protect those systems from an attack. Now, regulars, of course, deny that this is what they're doing, but the truth is that buyers can find themselves in a real bind in this situation, having essentially purchased an unavoidable compliance failing that was no fault of their own. Now, Brock, that naturally leads to the question, how much diligence of a target cybersecurity posture is good enough? Is there any clear guide that we can give people to that? Thank you, Richard. The uh, key is to have a team that can modulate its approach to emergent facts. It used to be the case that the deciding factor and the depth of the diligence was really the risk appetite of the company. But as you alluded to, uh, we're seeing regulators impute responsibility for prior events to acquirers. And so that means that the acquirer needs to be able to respond in due course as facts emerge. One significant issue that we're seeing from recent decisions is that it is not acceptable for a company to merely accept the representations and the warranties of their target uh, during the diligence process and during the, the closing process. And in fact, they need to be ready to take quick action upon closing so that they can remedy any issues that have arisen. Now, one question that clients often ask us is whether ascertaining during diligence that a target complies with a security certification. So, for example, the ISO 27001 series or NIST uh, or an industry standard like the PCI, DSS, for companies that take card payments, is that enough? These standards are helpful and they do provide baseline requirements that companies need to be able to show to meet reasonable commercial standards. But they're somewhat pejoratively referred to as check-the-box exercises, even though they are more than that. A company wants to be careful about just looking like they're doing the minimum level of compliance. And in fact, the UK's ICO has said about the DSS standards that they are just a baseline and more needs to be done. The key is for a company to understand the unique vulnerabilities of a target organization, regardless of the standards that it applies, and to be ready to address those unique vulnerabilities. Okay, so compliance with industry standards, that, that's clearly not a proxy for, uh, for compliance with the law. 
Another issue buyers face, um, if there has been an incident, is the lack of a counterfactual. Regulators are not easily persuaded by arguments that diligence would not, in fact, have identified that breach, or that this or that security change would not have prevented it, even though this might genuinely be the case. Despite that, assessing the current state of the target security posture and also its overall attitude to security, that can offer a really valuable insight into its risk profile. So, Brock, could you um, step people through the sorts of diligence that the legal team can assist with? Well, I mentioned the need to modulate your approach, and the way we think about doing that is conducting the diligence exercise along three key categories. The first being the technical reality of the company, the second, its policies and procedures, and three, its historical experience. Now, with respect to the technical reality, a company really needs to understand its target's assets, how it prioritizes those assets, and the infrastructure it has relating to those. The acquirer also needs to understand the policies and procedures that set rules about the way the company manages its data and enforces those rules to specific human and technical implementations. Finally, you have to ask all critical questions about the history of the company. Did breaches exist or, or occur? May someone assert that their data was somehow exposed? And there, as you get increasing information about what the historical experience is, you may need to dig deeper. Right. We will come back and dig a bit deeper on the technical side of um, security diligence in a moment. But I first wanted to bring in Christine. Uh, Christine, turning to privacy risk, um, similar to what we've seen with cyber incidents, there have been a number of deals recently that have floundered over privacy issues. And these, in fact, include several Chinese investments into the U.S., that were blocked by CFIUS because of you know, concerns over the safety of data. Now, it is certainly the case that diligencing a target's privacy compliance is a much more established part of M&A and has been for quite a few years, but the standard method of reviewing a bunch of documents in a data room increasingly really doesn't tell you what's actually going on under the hood, right? That's so true, Richard. I think that sometimes purchasers tend to put too much weight on looking at the target's privacy policy as if it's a comprehensive statement of all of the target's privacy measures, when in fact, often the privacy policy is not that revealing. First of all, the target may not really have customized the privacy policy that much. It's not uncommon for us to find, particularly for earlier stage companies, that they've just got a template from somewhere or maybe even copy and pasted some other company's privacy policy. So it's problematic to put too much weight on the privacy policy. And in addition, the privacy policy is really just a privacy notice to individuals. So it's just informing them of basic information about the processing of their information, as opposed to the more comprehensive internal policies and procedures you'd hope that companies would have to manage data internally. So you're absolutely right. And beyond that, what we often find is that even if you see the internal documentation, you don't get a full picture of exactly what the company is doing in terms of the types of information it's collecting about individuals, how it's using that data, and how it's sharing it. And so we find it's really valuable, if possible, to have a call with the management team to really get that fuller picture, because often you just can't rely on the documents that are in the data room. Right. So I guess that has to be the take home, that you really do need to sit down and or have management sit down and, and, and explain what they're doing with their data. because. You know, privacy compliance can go to the very viability of their, of their business model. What should purchasers be looking at more closely and, and what questions should they be asking to size up a target's um, compliance with privacy rules? 
Absolutely. I'd say that kind of similar to Brock's theme earlier, there's not a cookie cutter approach and that our approach to looking at privacy depends largely on the nature of the target company's business. So some target companies, the personal information they have may be primarily employee and business contact information, and that's important, but it's not as critical to the heart of the business as you're describing as privacy is for companies that have products or services that collect or process information about individuals. And so when we're thinking about looking at those issues, we are in particular for data-driven businesses, looking at what the internal policies and procedures are around managing privacy risk, because we're finding that regulators, not even just in the EU, but also in the US are expecting companies to have a more formal process for thinking through and assessing privacy risks for new products and services or new features added to products and services. And so not allowing us to just develop ad hoc, but having a more structured approach. So we'd be looking at privacy by design documentation, internal privacy assessments, and understanding what the process is for vetting those sorts of changes from a privacy standpoint. In addition, data subject, what we call data subject requests, the rights of individuals to request access to their information, deletion, correction, that's becoming a growing focus of privacy laws, even here in California, where I'm located, as well as other states in the US and certainly globally. And so you can tell a lot by looking at the target company's processes and procedures for handling those requests. If they're doing this on an ad hoc basis, that's not generally a good sign in terms of how robust and mature their privacy program is. So I would say those would be two key areas that we really focus on is looking at the privacy by design and privacy assessment process, and then also the process for handling data subject requests. And um, very often now we see privacy concerns that have surfaced during diligence um, needing to be fixed before a deal goes through. I worked on a deal recently where the person was looking to purchase a, a very popular app, really for the purpose of acquiring its user base and onboarding them onto their own platform. But the target was more or less a startup and really had only a very rudimentary approach to privacy. So it lacked the permission to you know, even disclose the identity of its users or to direct market to them to encourage them to move across. So we clearly had to fix that issue before the deal was going to be viable with a new privacy policy and push notices and things like that. That in turn created some real tension in the deal process, given that the seller you know, naturally, understandably, was concerned about the impact on the deal if an insufficient number of users were to give their consent. So, Christine, could you give us a few other examples from your experience of how this sort of pre-close remediation should best be undertaken? Absolutely. And I think the example you mentioned, Richard, is such an important one, because sometimes in that sort of circumstance, I find the parties assume that all they need to do is have the seller change its privacy policy on the eve of closing. So maybe the privacy policy before was silent on the ability to share information, or maybe worse yet, in many cases, we see the target's privacy policy committing that we will never, ever sell or share your information with anyone. And then the parties assume, well, all, well, the privacy policy later on says we can change it at any time, so we'll just have them change it and then we're done, right? And of course, as you described, the answer is no. When you're making that sort of material change, you need to also be thinking about what sort of choice do you give to end users and those individuals about their information going over. So that's certainly a circumstance we see frequently. 
I think another area of pre-closing remediation that comes up frequently involves data processing agreements, where there are more laws these days requiring specific types of data processing agreements, for instance, with vendors. Sometimes you find during due diligence that the target hasn't really gotten through the process of getting data processing agreements with its vendors. And sometimes that, that's identified as a remediation area as well in a pre-closing condition that at least to a degree, they will have made efforts to get those agreements in place. I would say another example I've seen, which has been an interesting variation, has been requiring the target to delete problematic data sets, particularly training data. And so not so long ago, it was, I would say, not that uncommon in the US for companies to scrape publicly available information they find online and use that data to train their algorithms, to train their AI models. And now, of course, there's become much more privacy scrutiny over whether that data was properly obtained and whether it can continue to be used. And so in some cases, a more sophisticated acquirer will require that target company to delete those problematic training data sets prior to closing so that they never even touch the uh, purchaser systems. So that's another example of the sorts of measures that we sometimes see. Right, in, in the final resort, sometimes data sets just can't be rescued and simply have to be deleted, as you say. One other point to consider is um, if a buyer is going to be asked to, or a seller, sorry, is going to be asked to undertake that sort of um, pre-closing remediation, how much oversight over that process is a buyer going to get? How can the seller evidence their compliance with the mediation steps? And, and what sort of information exchange is going to take place during that process? Well, and that's such an important point because as we're thinking about whether to have things fixed pre-closing or post-closing, it's important to be thoughtful because if you're requiring the changes to be made pre-closing, on the one hand, that has the advantage that's front-loading the work. Maybe in theory, at least, you'll have less work to do post-closing, but you have a lot less oversight, a lot less visibility. So in the data processing agreement example I mentioned, you might have the target company provide you with copies of the new data processing agreements that's entered into with vendors, but you wouldn't normally be able to be at the table in terms of negotiations. Maybe the vendors require certain concessions. You're not going to have as much control and oversight because first, you of course don't want to appear to be giving legal advice to a company you haven't yet bought. And then secondly, there can be antitrust concerns too and just competition concerns if it looks like the buyer is taking too much of a hands-on role in that target company's business before the acquisition. So you need to be very careful about that. And we're often looping in our antitrust colleagues to help give advice on that, to help make sure that we're navigating that appropriately. And for areas where you do want more of a hands-on role, maybe that's better addressed post-closing where you've got more time and can address that more thoughtfully and have more control over the process. Right. Returning to cyber, Brock, I mentioned before that we um, would come back and take a closer look at the technical side of, um, of cyber diligence, and then uh, perhaps we can move on to the remediation of security deficiencies. So firstly, what do clients need to think about when engaging forensic investigators as part of a diligence exercise? I think that decision usually rests upon two key spectrums. One is the level of risk involved in the data. So does the target entity retain a lot of highly sensitive data that could expose the company to various regimes that have a lot to say about such data? The second is the complexity of the systems themselves. And there's really two subcomponents to that. 
One is how does the acquiring company anticipate integrating those systems into their own systems and how much are they going to need to understand about the details of those systems in order to successfully execute that integration and estimate the costs of what that would look like. The second is that with rising complexity, we know that the risk surface or the, the vulnerabilities of the systems increases. And so you really need to understand how that complexity exposes the security surface to potential issues. And you may need a technical advisor in order to do that. The key point to think about when you're engaging a third party, however, is that they will potentially be producing highly sensitive information about the potential vulnerabilities and risks that exist. And if there is any incident, whether in the past or one that occurs after closing, that type of information could be valuable to regulators or litigators who are interested in the series of issues relating to the infrastructure and the, and the risks. So it's important to think carefully about potentially engaging a third party like that through counsel for privilege purposes. I think that's a very good point, and um, buyers need to be aware that security consultants um, often give, you know, very general sort of belt and braces recommendations that, um, as you say, can be very unhelpful if they get into the hands of a regulator after an incident is discovered. In as much as they sort of create an impossible standard almost for a purchaser to then um, demonstrate that they've met. Now, looking at the um, technical specifics of, um, of cyber diligence, it's, um, it's sort of impossible, really, to produce a definitive list of what um, good security looks like um, at any one point in time, because the state of the art, of course, is changing all the time. But at the same time, it's important to understand what regulators' expectations are to avoid giving them too many holes to pick at. So from your experience, Brock, what are the hot-button security topics that a regulator will be looking at in 2021? Well, as a general matter, you're always looking at the most fundamental uh, market standard implementations, things like endpoint detection and response and various antivirus capabilities. That's at the high level that we discussed earlier that you can then drill deeper into once you assess whether those basic requirements are met. In the COVID area, we've seen an interesting proliferation of more specific issues that regulators ask about. And those usually relate to the way that employees and contractors and others access the systems, frequently doing it remotely because of the COVID requirements in many jurisdictions. And that introduces a range of vulnerabilities that actors are taking advantage of. Do you have multi-factor authentication? Something regulators are regularly asking about. Do you have identity and authentication security capabilities that ensure that the employees and the users of their endpoints are who they say that they are. The users of their computers who are trying to get access to your resources are who they say that they are. The final point that I would say is that it's critical just to understand the overall security philosophy. It used to be the case that defense in depth was the governing rule in security, but now we're hearing more frequently the concept of zero trust being discussed. And zero trust essentially says that we assume that all users are potentially suspect and we have a cascade of rules within the system to limit their ability to access places where they shouldn't be able to access and to do damage in the event of more unauthorized access. So regulators are also asking about this concept of zero trust and the potentially related implementations. Now, um, unfortunately, regulators have a tendency to focus on each of those measures separately rather than take a um, holistic view, look at the um, whole IT security environment. And that, again, unfortunately, is something that um, buyers do need to keep in mind. 
The truth is that regulators are, are not security experts either, so sort of overdoing security, at least in terms of managing future regulatory processes, is often not a bad watchword as well. Um, Christine, coming back to privacy, could you explain what the main post-closing privacy issues are that a purchaser needs to consider? I think the main post-closing issue is what the plans are for the data post-closing of the target company, whether the target will just continue operating as a separate entity, business as usual, or whether the goal is to roll the data up into the parent company or to at least allow sharing of that data so the parent company and other affiliates can use the data themselves. And then when you're looking at that, when you know what the plan is, then we're looking at what privacy notices were given, whether the notices are consistent with the intent for the data post-closing and what steps need to be taken to help align the data uses with the required compliance measures. And so the more that we know early in the due diligence process about the plans for the data and the company post-closing, the better we can help to be identifying those issues and the steps that will need to be taken during that integration process. Because it's not as simple as just merging the databases. There's actually a lot of work that goes into aligning privacy practices and notices and consents and so forth before you can take that step. Thank you, Christine. Um, Brock, let's end the session by looking at the um, decisions that a purchaser will need to take and some of the most important decisions in that immediate post-closing period. And um, I guess the question there is, you know, how long will they have before they will own an incident that occurs or might indeed have already occurred? Well, as we're seeing from recent regulatory decisions, they'll essentially have little to no time. So once the closure happens, they are imputed with the responsibilities of the various security history, and future implementation. So that's why it's important to identify events and steps that are going to need to be taken and to have a plan in advance of closing to immediately start to implement those requirements. Thank you. Um, so Christine Brock, um, do you have any final words for our audience? I think from the privacy side, my final word would be that privacy is more than a legal compliance issue. It's also a brand and reputational issue. And so as privacy professionals, we often use the term creepiness factor, which is not found in any law, as you can imagine, but it reflects that in some cases a business will be so cutting edge and it might not be crossing the line to being illegal, but it still might feel creepy. And you need to be thinking about what your business's creepiness factor level is and thinking about what target businesses you're looking at acquiring, because sometimes you might be looking at a target and it's so intriguing, it's so cutting edge, but it's just beyond the realm of what you're comfortable with from a brand and reputational standpoint. So I think it's important to be thinking about that level as well. Yes, and I would just add from a security perspective that while historically security issues were thought about as technical issues for the information security staff, they have become business issues and the business needs to become conversant in the key considerations relating to such security issues so that they can demonstrate the reasonable steps they've taken with the data that they possess. I think that's absolutely right. And um, in my experience, the truth is that cyber diligence is still not an important enough part of M&A processes and, it, and more emphasis does need to be given to that. So um, thank you very much for um, sharing your valuable insights with us um, this morning and, and sharing your time with us as well. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Richard.